Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovich, Chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. My guest today is Shashank Joshi, a defense editor at The Economist and really one of the most astute observers of warfare, the war in Ukraine, as well as many conflicts that we're now seeing in the Middle East. He is one of my go-to sources on in-depth analysis and news on these issues. Always very smart and insightful. Shashank, welcome to the show. Um, Dimitri, thank you so much for having me. You've, you've made me blush with that introduction. Very, very kind. Well, so as, as you know, we have a lot of very deep conversations on tactics and strategy related to particular conflicts, whether it's war in Ukraine or the potential conflict over Taiwan. But today I wanted to step back from all of that and talk to you about the changing nature of warfare itself. You've written very extensively on these topics in The Economist, on unmanned systems that have become so ubiquitous on the battlefield. You've talked about the impact of proliferations of missiles to state and non-state actors and the impact in the Middle East that we're witnessing from that. So let me start with an overarching question, which is there's this ongoing debate inside the military analyst community about how much war has really changed due to some of these technological advances, particularly in the area of unmanned systems. So, you know, as perhaps the war in Ukraine shows us, is there a huge change that we're now seeing because of these systems and their deployment on a, on a daily basis? Or is there really no substitute for large infantry force supplied with enormous quantities of artillery ammunition, as was the case back over 100 years ago in World War I? Where do you stand on this? I air, Dimitri, to the view that things really are changing. And I think it's very important to bear in mind this is not just about Ukraine. This predates Ukraine. Um, in January of uh, 2022, as Russian forces were massing on the border with Ukraine, and you know, you, you and I could were swapping messages, sharing our views, and we could we could see a war was coming. Even back then, and before that, um, armies around the world, and particularly NATO armed forces, but I could see many others were identifying some of these big structural change. Um, I just want to mention, for example, a speech that General Sir Mark Carlton Smith gave. Uh, he's, he was at the time Britain's chief of general staff, the equivalent of the chief of army staff. And he told a conference um, a year after Nagorno-Karabakh, small wars are throwing up some big lessons. The hallmarks of a different kind of land warfare are already apparent. Um, I remember at the time I was talking to um, uh, people like uh, Mick Ryan, who, of course, was uh, the Australian general who was heading up the Australian Defense College at the time. Uh, and I spoke to him back then and he was saying to me, and, and again, I'll read a quote out, the ability to link sensors to commanders and to weapons over the last 20 to 20, 30 years has profoundly changed our conception of time on the battlefield. And I remember writing back then, Dimitri, that, you know, in, in the, the Gulf War, or, or even if you go back to the, you know, the Ho Chi Minh Trail, there was often like an hour between spotting a target and actually receiving an airstrike or an artillery barrage. And what Mick said to me at the time, and I, and I think has been proven correct, is if we think we've been spotted, we have 10 minutes. And if we're not gone, we're dead. And what Ukraine has showed us, actually, it's not 10 minutes in a suitably dense uh, surveillance environment. It's actually a couple of minutes or less. So has that been really the biggest impact that you've seen in the last couple of decades of watching war evolve? That is that speed, the nature of intelligence being able to be proliferated across the battlefield down to you know, individual soldier level, being inside the enemy's OODA loop? Is that really the biggest change? 
I think there's three changes, right? And one of them is the precision revolution, the revolution in precision strike munitions. And, you know, as as you know, Dimitri, that goes back a long way, right? The first, the first, I mean, you, depending on how you define it, you can define wire guided um, tank, anti-tank missiles the Germans were experimenting with in World War II as precision. But I think it's reasonable to say, you know, these laser guided missiles that first appeared in Vietnam and then began to proliferate as we got miniaturization of electronics, um, the microelectronic revolution, that's kind of step one, precise weapons. Step two, I think, is the sensors that have allowed them to be targeted more accurately and precisely, right? So that's the ubiquity of not just not just drones, but I think in some ways, just as importantly, um, the fidelity and cost of the sensors on them, right? So thermal images, thermal images that can be had for a fraction of the price of 20 years ago, that can pick up incredibly small variations in movement from greater distances. And pillar three, which I think is 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 tends to get forgotten sometimes, is the digital networks that connect these things, right? If the Ukrainians had their fantastic drones and they had um, all of their um, uh, uh, reconnaissance assets and their kamikaze drones, they would still need the existence of constellations like Starlink or other kinds of comparable battle networks to actually knit these things together. So that those that trio of things, that trinity, I think, is really what has driven the revolution uh, in in warfare. However, the one the one thing I will say here is that 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 adds up to this battlefield, which is incredibly lethal, incredibly dangerous for ground forces uh, who can be seen, who can be struck. It does not mean you have a kind of bloodless, antiseptic, um, you know, bl- blitzkrieg maneuver warfare that means you no longer need mass, you no longer need troops, you no longer need ammunition. If anything, when both sides have those kind of technologies, you can still end up in a kind of slugfest, as we have seen. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you get, um, you know, a, a sudden advantage for the offensive. It can quite easily mean the opposite as well. So... Obviously, the conflict that we're seeing play out right now between Russia and Ukraine is a conflict between two nation states that don't necessarily have the most networked, most advanced systems. Much of the battlefield has been characterized by armored vehicles from the 1960s and 1970s without advanced networking, without advanced uh, capabilities that you would see from the U.S. force, for example, even the Chinese force that is much more modernized. And even though the Russians have been trying to introduce the the T-14 Armada tanks and the like. Um, they've not been able to produce them in large quantities and, and really have a significant effect on this conflict. So I'm curious how much of what we're seeing today is really a byproduct of the fact that you have these two militaries that don't have access to much more advanced weapons platforms, you know, like the F-35, for example, on the U.S. side. And that's why they're trying to innovate with these FPV drones and cheaper alternatives, not necessarily to the F-35, but to maybe a global hawk type of sensor that the U.S. would deploy in the battlefield. And you would see less of an impact from these, you know, cheaper alternatives on a conflict between two really advanced powers like, say, China and, and the United States. This is the question, isn't it, Dimitri? Would would we do better? It's the would we do better question as well. And and some of it you have to remember, of course, you know, the, the theater matters, the geography matters, right? So the weapons we see play a big role uh, in, in Ukraine 
things like um, short-ranged artillery, very short-ranged uh, UAV systems, uh, really, really tactical ranges. These would have much, much more limited utility for US and allied forces operating across the huge distances of the Pacific, where you know physics imposes certain limits on the kind of things you need for motors, battery size, payloads, ranges, um, and and the same cost savings are not always available. But I think I think this is such an interesting debate because, on the one hand, there is the view that says, you know, look, um, America uh, has extensive experience in combined arms warfare in its training ranges. Look, admittedly, it cut down on the, that those kind of rotations during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. But at the end of the day, American infantry and armor forces are still much, much more adept and experienced at combined arms warfare, at synchronizing infantry, artillery, um, and other forces than the Ukrainians were, who were operating with really limited training. They would have air cover up ahead, so there would be a much reduced aerial threat. They would have much, much more firepower at their disposal to suppress the Russian anti-tank teams, the Russian Lancet teams that are doing such damage to the Ukrainians. That's the view that says we would do it differently. It would be fine for us. There's and another, our def- view. air defense capabilities are so much better as witnessed by the fact that very few casualties have been suffered in the Middle East despite constant drone attacks and attempts on our bases, right? Yes, exactly. And, you know, the, yes, three, three American soldiers were killed in Jordan, but those were the first three American soldiers killed uh, by an aircraft attack since the Korean War. So that tells you something both about the nature of the threat and about the quality of recent defenses. However, there is another view here to all of this. You know, so, I mean, I was, I've just finished drafting a piece on the future of the U.S. Army that tries to kind of take in some of these debates. Um, and, I, and I was listening to a, a podcast in which, uh, a War on the Rocks podcast, in fact, in which General, General Randy George, the chief of the Army staff, was asked, what books would he recommend? And he cited a book by Jack Watling of Rusi, an, an analyst who you and I, I'm sure, yeah. read very frequently. And it was a book called The Arms of the Future. It's a very good book. I've, I've, I think my blurb is on the back recommending it. Um, but in one of those bits of the book, I, I remember Jack describes recent rounds of the warfighter exercise. This is a big annual exercise led by the United States at divisional scale. And Jack describes how in recent iterations of that exercise, combat brigades who are up against these increasingly good sensors, these increasingly long-range deadly munitions, they even they take huge losses. They come out of these rotations with 20% combat effectiveness, which is basically by, by NATO standards, combat ineffective. Artillery devastates infantry and armor well, or m- maneuver units well before they get within uh, the direct fire zone, as Jack writes, right? So that shows you it's not just that we would blitz through these Russian defenses. Exercises that we have conducted, that the U.S. has conducted you know, in these environments shows they would also struggle. And when I interviewed um, a, a guy called General Jim Rainey, who's the commander of the U.S. US, Army, um, US Army Futures Command, you know, what he said to me is, we assume we are going to fight under constant observation and in constant contact of some form. There is no break. There is no sanctuary. So actually, when you talk to American officers, the, the, the answer to this is they are not complacent. They don't assume that we would simply be able to fight with advantages that would um, obviate all of these problems that the Ukrainians have suffered. I think that's a, that's a really, really key point to know. But, but you wouldn't know this until, of course, you were in the fight. You know, one way to address this problem and one of the deep weaknesses of unmanned systems is their susceptibility to electronic warfare, right? And we've seen just the growing importance of EW, not just on the recent battlefield, but really over the course of, of decades, ever since you know jamming techniques and radar and, and the like has been invented. But has it become 
exceedingly more important today. And your ability to thwart communications of these FPV drones or the Mavics that are being used on the battlefield to both prevent the loitering munitions that are causing so much damage to individual infantry companies or to stop the observation by your adversary troops. Is that something that you think the U.S. would have a much bigger advantage than, say, the Ukrainians or the Russians that are clearly lagging behind in that area? There's no question that the U.S. and some of its uh, Five Eyes allies uh, really have incredibly exquisite capabilities in the area of VW. I think electronic warfare has been such an interesting um, uh, dimension of this war. I mean, and as you say, um, uh, jamming has been extremely effective. And, and jamming, the really interesting thing about jamming is how the ebb and flow of the electronic battle, right? So to give one example of that, we know that early in their introduction into this war, things like GPS-guided artillery shells, the American Excalibur, were extremely effective. They 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 were very very um, effective for the Ukrainian side. Um, much much more expensive and exquisitely sophisticated than a normal unguided artillery shell. But equally, uh, they can of course you know hit the target one round one kill uh, in, in highly precise ways. These were absolutely loved by the Ukrainians. They have then you know in the spring. Um, this was I think um, last spring, so almost a year ago. These were suffering from extremely heavy interception rates, or, or not necessarily interception, but their the proximity fuses were being thrown off um, by the... Guided by off the course, intensity. effectively. Guided off course, or, or in some cases, um, they even if they were on course, the detonation or the activation was not working as intended. The, the details, of course, <laughs> held somewhere at high levels of classification, buried somewhere in a in a UCOM uh, uh, study. But, but, but the point is, you know, this changed over time. And the same thing happened with the uh, Gimlers, the the um, uh, guided rockets that were fired by HIMARS to such devastating effect against Russian ammunition depots and other rear areas last in the summer of 2022 in a way that actually, you know, whether it turned the war around, maybe that's an exaggeration, but they, they certainly had a huge effect in blunting Russia's fire superiority that was otherwise making itself felt in the Donbass. Now, Electronic warfare, I will confess, is a field I find difficult to get a handle on because of the secrecy surrounding it. And I certainly have spoken to some American officers who say, look, some of the things you're seeing with drones and the ability to fly drones on each side, I would not want to be a, um, you know, a, a Russian officer flying a drone in proximity to a U.S. brigade combat team in a real war because of our ability to conduct electronic direction finding and the effects we could rain down upon them when we found the operator location. So clearly, we have to be very humble about what we don't know. Uh, it's easy to uh, say Russian electronic warfare is fantastic. It's brilliant because there's so much published on it. They have um, shown off their vehicles they've invested in since 2014. It's been effective against Ukraine. Um, we don't know what we don't know about NATO and particularly American electronic warfare. And I suspect it's extremely good, extremely effective and extremely classified. Um, however, I'm also cognizant that it's not a field where you can just rest on your laurels, right? We're seeing a really rapid pace of innovation in EW. Um, we're seeing, you know, things like software-defined radios being put into ever cheaper platforms, able to engage in frequency hopping to evade jamming. Um, you know, we're seeing all kinds of new, um, uh, cheaper tactical jammers proliferate across the landscape. And again, mass plays a role here. It's not just a question of which side has the best jamming. It's a question of also who can who can bring it to bear in the greatest volumes. And certainly, the Ukrainian 
electronic warfare specialists I have spoken to say that the sheer volume of tactical, quite cheap, quite simple uh, jamming that the Russians have been able to spread out along the trenches, along their front lines, has posed a problem of sheer scale. You know, one of the things that is rarely talked about, but I know is a big issue really for both sides, is the power requirements of those jammers, right? And the need for mobile power on the battlefield. And that's something that is going to be an issue for anyone that, you know, it's great to have all these EW systems, but if you don't have enough power sources to affect, you know, jamming across large distances or across many frequencies, it won't be doing you a whole lot of good, particularly across a very large battlefield. And that's something that's not really talked about that, that, you know, the the Ukrainians are relying on these car batteries that they're plugging in to power some of these jammers. And uh, that's not necessarily the most effective way. And there's questions, how do you recharge it and and so forth? The logistical needs for EW is a really big issue, I think, for every military, right? And and your power is one of those things, isn't it, um, Dimitri? It's, it's the unsexy bit we we don't really talk much about. Just like logistics, just like networks, just like other stuff. Power is so key. And actually, you point out EW, yes. Um, uh, also, as directed energy systems, things like lasers, but also high powered microwaves, become more prominent as people try to use these for air defense purposes in order to try and conserve uh, interceptors and munitions. Um, they're going to find there's a big power problem. You know, I remember writing about lasers a few years ago. Um, uh, so the first solid state lasers, I think that the Navy was testing at a decent scale uh, 10 years ago, were about 30 kilowatts, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you might be better at the elect- electronics than I am, but the output of an average home boiler, roughly, right? Certainly, maybe maybe in the UK context. Um, and that was fitted, I think, to a, the USS Ponce. But, but um uh, warships were often much better placed to have the size, the space, the capacity to kind of take some of these power requirements on. Now we're looking at much more powerful systems. I think there's a 60 kilowatt system tested on a destroyer a few years ago. There's a 150 kilowatt system being tested on bigger ships. There's a 50 kilowatt system that's meant to be able to be on top of striker armored vehicles um, and, and defend them against aerial threats. But this stuff is hugely power intensive. And one of the interesting things is the um, way this has prompted renewed thinking around alternative energy sources, including small, even micro, micro nuclear, nuclear power reactors for this kind of stuff. And, you know, the other thing that I find so fascinating when you particularly look at unmanned systems is sort of the change in requirements in them. You know, you're seeing these drones that the Ukrainians are deploying on longer range scale, trying to hit Moscow or St. Petersburg and the like, and now trying to think about evading air defenses that the Russians are increasingly setting up across southern Russia, perhaps using EW on those systems, employing jet engines that can fly those at a much uh, higher speeds. And I look at all that and I say, well, at what point does this just become a missile? Are we recreating a missile when we are doing this? Or when you look at the Sea Baby drones that the Ukrainians have used so effectively in the Black Sea, and them talking about how they're trying to replicate most of the capabilities of a frigate from the defensive capabilities to the offensive capabilities, jamming and so forth. And are we essentially trying to replicate maybe on a smaller scale a lot of the systems that we've had for many decades? And as a result, actually, the cost of those systems is rising as well. One thing I found particularly fascinating with the leaks of the Iranian documents from this IRGC front company about the Shahed drones that they had sold to Russia for $1.8 billion in gold, apparently, and the cost at which the Iranians are selling them to Russia, two to $300,000 a piece, 
which, you know, four or five of these things is equivalent to the cost of a tomahawk. And I think I'd much rather have a tomahawk with all of its capabilities. So at what point does this become self-defeating where you're trying to replicate what already exists, whether it's a torpedo in the naval space or a cruise missile in, in the airspace and so forth? It's, a, it's such a great question. I mean, it really depends what you're trying to do, right? Um, it's interesting you mentioned the Shahid. I, I was certainly talking to officials the other day, and their estimate was the Russians should be able to get these things down to, um, with mass production, down to four figures. Um, you know, so so under 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 ten thousand um, dollars. If if that's the case, then obviously you can buy a, a hell of a lot more Shahids for a for a tomahawk than 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 if we're looking at much higher higher amounts. And it depends what your model is and who you're up against, right? If if you need to have penetration aids and it needs to be able to navigate autonomously and it needs to be electronically shielded, then very quickly at, at a certain point you would go for the tomahawk, particularly if it's any kind of target that you need to hit with assurance rather than chucking lots of stuff at it. And it's, it's not militarily vital whether you hit it or not. If you're talking about hitting a um, air defense radar that you know you need to hit because you have a package of planes coming in following up, then, then that becomes much different. Um, I mean, I, I, th I think the, 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 the question is what's good enough, right? And you still, I think what you will end up with is I could be wrong on this, but a sort of high, you need a high, low mix of stuff. The Ukrainians are still using Storm Shadow and Scalp in Crimea for a good reason, because that is the system that is likeliest to hit these valuable targets in places like Sevastopol and, and elsewhere, um, because they are the ones getting through the thickest bits of Russian air defenses around the Crimean Peninsula, stuff they really need to hit. And in some cases, because you have buried or otherwise tricky targets. And of course, one reason that they want the Taurus, as you know, the German Taurus, is because it, it appears to be particularly well suited to taking out some types of uh, uh, complex targets like bridges. A, a, a cheap homemade Ukrainian drone that is priced at $30,000 is just not going to be able to do that with any assurance. And even if it can do it once, it doesn't mean it can do it again and again. Um, so I think I think it it depends, you know, what what you're trying to achieve. And here are different are different philosophies of war might also make a difference, right? Russia has put a fair bit of emphasis on strategies of conventional punishment. Uh, and indeed conventional deterrence is a really significant part of its broader strategic outlook using a lot of conventional firepower to use against critical national infrastructure and more recently against defense industrial sites is a really important part of its approach to sapping Ukrainian morale. Uh, last year, trying to um, um, uh, reduce um, uh, energy supply for the country as a whole and those other things. That's not probably going to be a NATO priority in a war with Russia. You know, that's going to be focused more on the front, on the deep battle, taking out Russian logistics, taking out depots, and actually, um, you know, low-end munitions en masse are going to be much more useful in that context at the tactical level, not at the kind of theater strategic level, I think. And how much do you think the innovation that we're seeing really on both sides now in this development is a consequence of the fact that neither side has been able to establish air superiority? You know, in the conflict, you know, where the U.S. fights, we are highly dependent on achieving air superiority right away. We're very good at suppression and destruction of enemy air defenses. And if we have blanket coverage over the battlefield, we probably need fewer unmanned systems because we have aircraft with precision-guided munition, with lots of assets like Global Hawks and, and so forth, providing ISR, intelligence surveillance or reconnaissance over the battlefield. 
So how much of what we're seeing really is an adaptation to a fundamental weakness that both Russia and Ukraine has in the area of air power? Well, um, I think that's certainly part of it. If you look at if you look at NATO doctrine for the Cold War, what was it that was going to be able to do lots of the, for example, tank busting? It was it was air power, right? And a lot of the most advanced missiles we have in the arsenal today, things like brimstone, are designed against uh, heavy armored targets, and they're very very effective against them. The fact that Ukraine is flying cheap FPV drones is a strategy of necessity, um, and just because some of these things can attempt to perform the role of an anti-tank guided missile, and in some cases, I believe, can do it pretty well, even if they need multiple strikes, even if they are constrained by range, even if they can't operate at night or in extremely inclement weather, even if you take, you know, five of these strikes to take out a Russian, a piece of Russian armor, there is still value in having a option of cheap, low, high volume, low end anti-tank capability. Um, um, but if we were doing it, we would use brimstone. But I would say two things. Number one, how many air launch missiles do we have? Okay, I mean, we, as, you, as you know, the constraint in high-end munitions has always been a problem, and it will be a bigger problem in future conflicts. I look at Israel right now. We saw the reporting around around the Christmas that uh, for, uh, forty-five to fifty percent, forty to forty-five percent of Israeli munitions dropped between October and I think December or so were dumb munitions. Why was that? Um, it was partly, I believe, because Israel was probably conserving its stock of PGMs in case of escalation with Hezbollah. But it still told us that for a country like Israel that had been buying eye-watering sums of JDAMs in the preceding years and had been receiving a huge influx of, of, of PGMs from the US, um, uh, even since October 7th, even for them, this was a constraint. Uh, and of course, we all know how Europeans ran out of PGMs in Libya in 2011. So, okay, so maybe we would deliver all of this by air power. But at some point, are you going to run out of high-end munitions uh, against the against an adversary that has a huge, huge volume of potential targets? I think that's number one. And and I'll be as brief as I can. But number two is how absolutely confident are we, Dimitri, that we are going to have air, air superiority in all circumstances? You know, I, I, I just think it's a little bit complacent to assume this. Um, uh, you know, could we could we seriously degrade Russia, the Russian air defense network as it exists today in Ukraine in a way the Ukrainians can't? Absolutely. I'm sure we could, you know, given the combination of stealth, um, our huge experience in uh, anti-radiation warfare in the form of missiles, but also electronic countermeasures, all of that stuff. No doubt about it. Yes. But what about the Pacific? What about a fight in the Pacific where, for example, um, uh, we're looking at a dense Chinese integrated air defense, air and missile defense network along the Chinese coastline? Um, how much of that fight is going to be a standoff, uh, arm's length fight in which um, unmanned autonomous systems become important again? And OK, these are not going to be 10 kilometer FPV systems. They're you know, obviously not, obviously not, unless you're talking about the kind of defensive Taipei uh, at the tactical level. but but um, air superiority, you know, assuming that's going to fix all our problems, seems to me a little bit questionable. I don't know. Am I being am I being overly cautious? Do you think? No, I think so. I mean, as you highlight, probably the biggest issue we face is the just absolute number of munitions that we would be able to apply in a conflict and how quickly we can run out of them. And I actually fear that in our really forty plus year pursuit of exquisite, highly capable platforms that are extraordinarily expensive. We've lost sight of what's really required. I mean, 
the most egregious example of, of this for me is is the aircraft carriers, where you know the four class aircraft carrier is approaching fourteen billion dollars, whereas the previous generation, the Nimitz class, we could acquire for four billion, and, and that was still the best aircraft carrier in the world by a mile. And are we getting you know three to four x value from from the four class? Uh, I, I highly highly doubt it, right? And uh, in particular, I'm curious uh, of your view on this, and I want to switch in a second to the missile discussion as well, because you've written some really great pieces on that in The Economist lately. But I'm curious for your your view on hypersonics. You know, from my perspective today, at the price tag of some of these missiles approaching sixty million bucks, this is a highly overpriced capability. Yes, they're faster. Yes, they're longer range. Yes, they can get through potentially air defenses. But you know what? What else can can get through them? 60 Tomahawks launched at an air defense site at the same price tag would also get through. So and and potentially quite a few few less. So is it you know, how many targets are we going to find that it's worth lobbying a 60 million dollar missile at? I think that um, uh I haven't got very strong views on this, but I do think that what we're going to see is for the highest end hypersonic systems, um, these may just be built in fairly limited numbers. They may be quite exquisite capabilities that, as you say, are conserved for the highest value targets. Um, Now, some of that may be to do with the way that China and Russia may both come to see certain sorts of conventional hypersonic systems as um, strategic weapons capable of um, uh, hedging against future breakthroughs in U.S. missile defense, national national ballistic missile defense, and preserving a sort of strategic deterrence capability against against the United States. Some of that also, I think, is for the Chinese. Certainly, they see these as extremely valuable in, a, in the context of the naval war against carriers, right? You've talked about the um, U.S. US carriers. The U.S. does not have a huge number of carriers. I mean, of course, you know, it depends how you define huge relative to the rest of the world. It has a huge number of carriers. But when you look at a war in the Pacific, um, these are going to be very, very valuable targets for, 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 the, for the Chinese. You know, um, what is uh, here we get into kind of maybe some very crunchy operational research type calculations on um, when you look at future missile defense systems ringing a carrier strike group uh, relative to, you know, uh, is, is the, has the PLA concluded with assurance that 60 Tomahawk equivalent, 60 T-LAMs will, um, uh, uh, will really be able to penetrate the bubble of a carrier strike group and take out that capability with assurance? Um, because if if they're not if they're not pretty sure, then you can see how exquisite, highly expensive hypersonic capabilities may be worth investing in if they feel that these are going to be the things that will outpace U.S. defenses for a while to come. So it might might make sense for them. Does it make sense for us? Um, that I that I'm I'm much less sure on. Um, I don't know enough about, for instance, the uh, assessments of the kind of the horizon of Chinese and Russian air defense capabilities. Where are they headed? Where are they advancing? Are they going in a direction that is putting at risk our existing long range strike platforms? Um, But I think this also depends on the cost, right? We have to be careful about assuming um, the costs are static. Uh, If you look at the work being done today in AUKUS and in some of these other groups, um, a lot of it is about doing much more basic and initial research around hypersonic technology. Um, and if some of that is, you know, comes to fruition and matures and you're able to produce this stuff more cheaply, a lot of the constraint, as you know, Dimitri, for example, is in material sciences, right? How do we develop um, materials that can cope with the exceptionally high speeds that hypersonics experience when they're maneuvering for long periods 
endoatmospherically inside the atmosphere? Um, and how does this affect the integrity of the material? How does this affect signals that are going to and from the hypersonic reentry vehicle, the glide vehicle? Um, if material, if there's breakthroughs in material sciences, breakthroughs in those areas, could we see cheaper hypersonics? Very possibly. But all in all, I think you're kind of right to ask, what are we trying to achieve with all this? What is the problem we are trying to solve? Um, you know, if it's long range strike, if it's delivering conventional firepower to a target, can this just be done through a bigger pay? Uh, you know, can we invest? Do we invest more in bombers? Do we invest more in conventional attack submarines that carry long range um, sea launched cruise missiles? It doesn't just have to be, um, you know, sort of a, a hypersonic capability. Um, having 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 said that, of course, you know the the U.S. Army is already equipping itself with the long range hypersonic weapon. I was just writing on the multi domain task forces, uh, which is setting up in Europe and the Pacific. The first multi domain task force that's going to be Pacific focused is already operating the long range hypersonic weapon. So you can probably claw that from their cold dead hands now. <laughs> yeah, and, and to be clear, I'm I'm all for research, and if there are advancements that would make this much cheaper. I'm all for it. I just question the need to deploy this now at the price tag that we're buying it, given that we will not be able to afford significant numbers of them. So if you have just a few, does it really change anything in the grand scheme of things? And could that there, be there is one thing I'll say, which is, which is that, um, you know, it, 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 it does really depend also on hypersonic defense, which is, which is uh, hypersonic defense is also a fast evolving field. I think CSIS put out a very good report on this within the last few months that looked, for example, at all the different progress and advancements in how do you pick up a hypersonic glide vehicle that is maneuvering for long periods in the atmosphere. It puts a lot of pressure, for example, on space-based sensors. And right now, while that capability maybe something where we have an advantage in detecting. Actually, as China builds out its constellation of low Earth orbit reconnaissance satellites, which is growing at a completely phenomenal pace, I think they they roughly doubled the number of ISR satellites in, in low Earth orbit between 2019 and, and 2023, um, their own ability to defend against hypersonics will correspondingly grow. So it's very, very, I don't know, maybe we're kind of at that point, you know, where you look, you look back at those old studies of things like... Um, um, strategic defense initiative in the early 80s, and you look at these completely wacky, crazy ideas that were being costed, explored, and you look back at them from the perspective of kind of 15 years hence, and they all look nuts, but they made a lot of sense at the time from the kind of technological environment they were in and the problems they were trying to solve. Yeah, over 30 years indeed with some of them. So let me let me talk a little bit about the switch to discussion to missiles, because you've written you know, a really terrific piece on the proliferation of missiles, particularly in the Middle East. We're seeing the impact that the Houthis are able to get in the Red Sea, shutting off maritime trade in that vital waterway. Talk a little bit about what you've seen and what you've written about in, in the last few decades about the impact of the proliferation of missiles to both state and non-state actors. So, I mean, there's an incredible proliferation, right? So just to, just to begin with a, a, a stat here, there's a great paper by Michael Horowitz, who's now in the Pentagon, actually, working on emerging technologies, um, and Lauren Kahn, who was at uh, George, Georgetown University. And they, they showed that in 1990, there were just nine countries that had smart bombs, precision-guided bombs, right, which could use either a mix of inertial navigation or laser guidance or satellite signals to find their targets, even China and India and most NATO countries did not have the capability at the time. Then by 2000, 22 countries have this. By 2017, it is 56. So it's basically more than doubled in that in that 17 year period. To give you a concrete example, let's look at Iran. 
In the 1990s, Iran is striking militants in Iraq using basically what are knockoffs of the Scud missile, right? The Scud is like a, as, as most listeners will know, a Soviet era standard stalwart short range tactical ballistic missile. They, a lot of people extended the range, but basically it's a kind of very crude missile, a tactical ballistic missile. Those missiles that were firing in the, in the 90s and the early 2000s had a circular error probable. This is a, this is a distance uh, inside which we expect kind of half the rounds to, to land roughly. The CEP was about half a kilometer, right? Half a kilometer. You're not going to hit a building with, with that unless it's a huge building. Now compare that to today's uh, the missile, the, the Fateh 110, which is an Iranian-designed family of missiles, the CEP is thought to be well under 35 meters, maybe as low as five meters with a reliable GNSS, reliable GPS-type signal. Um, good enough, basically, to hit a big vehicle. And we saw that, as you remember, as listeners will remember, in January 2020, we saw this incredible strike by the Iranians against Al-Assad Air Base in Iraq, against U.S. troops, in retaliation for the assassination of Soleimani, uh, and they scored six strike six direct hits on missile hangers. Um, and we saw similarly the previous year, the attack on Abqaiq Quraysh, the oil refineries in, in Saudi Arabia, very, very precise drone and cruise missile attacks. So it's not that these capabilities are new, right? The American, you, you, you guys could do this in 91, no problem, but the rest of the world could not. And now a lot of people can do it. A lot of people can do it. And that really changes the calculus. And you have a, a Houthi rebel force that can launch missiles over a thousand kilometers, uh, that can force Israel to intercept them exo-atmospherically using its most advanced air defense systems. You have, um, you know, um, uh, anti-ship ballistic missiles that we were once kind of opening, you know, raising our eyebrows at when the Chinese were developing these, being fired by the Houthis in the Red Sea. This is a clear missile revolution that's taking place. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't defend against these. We've, we've, we've knocked most of these out of the sky in the Red Sea. It doesn't mean that, you know, you're in, that, that, that they make them invulnerable, but it poses a serious, serious problem to countries like the US, whose way of war in the 90s and even the early 2000s was to say, let's spend a few months gathering all our forces together at big ports, big air bases before we launch an attack, before we have to go into a war. That approach is now much, much more complicated. And, you know, it's striking. You talk about this proliferation that's taking place. In large part, it's taking place because of what the Soviets and later the Chinese have done in selling their missiles to these regimes, which have been approved upon, certainly with indigenous capabilities. But a lot of the basis for these missiles, you talk about FATA-110, traces back to Soviet-era missiles and Chinese missiles that the Iran had purchased early on that they've been able to improve upon. So, it, and, and the North Koreans obviously are a big proliferator of that technology as well. It's not that everyone is starting from scratch and building it completely on their own, right? And even Shahed drones trace their lineage back to some of the German designs and even Israeli designs as well. Absolutely. And, and, and the bit I should probably emphasize here is how much the Iranians today are at the the crux of this network. And it's not always, we should emphasize that they're providing entire missiles, uh, you know, with fuel and engines and motors and everything. The Houthis can construct some of these. Uh, Hamas can construct some of these in ways they couldn't 15 years ago. Uh, So can Hezbollah. What they are doing in many cases is providing guidance kits. This is a huge problem in Lebanon, huge problem for the Israelis, because in 2006, when the Hezbollah rocket strikes caused a lot of problems for the Israelis, Almost the entirety of the Hezbollah arsenal was unguided, 
not in, not entirely, but almost all of it. Most of the rockets, a lot of the rockets could be ignored. Over the past 10 years, Iran sent hundreds of guidance kits, which are much, much easier to smuggle in than entire missiles. And the same thing in Yemen. And they can turn regular missiles into precision ones. Why is that a problem? Um, it's it's a double problem. It, precise missiles are obviously you know m- are going to hit more things, but it also taxes your air defense. If you think about Iron Dome in Israel, you know we've seen the incredible images of interceptions. As as you know, Dimitri, the system, the, the system's genius is the software, right? It it can work out which rockets are headed for where, and if it works out they are headed for a um um you know an open area and and, and a completely point uh, you know. Uh, low value uh, bit of countryside, it lets the rocket strike. It doesn't waste an interceptor on that. If you have an arsenal made up entirely of precision missiles or increasingly of precision missiles, every single incoming threat will be heading for something the Hezbollah wants to hit. And so it will place a profound burden on the uh, interceptor volumes that you then have to come up with. And that is going to be a huge, huge challenge. Now, let's think about what this means for a world in which um, you know, a group like, um, um, you know, Hamas has this technology at scale uh, rather than just Hezbollah uh, or, or you know, let's let's imagine even further along. Uh, and I think here where we kind of have to circle back a little bit to Ukraine, um, you know, we, we put drones on the cover of The Economist this week. And, and the reason we did it was not because drones are revolutionary, not because drones are new, but because precision historically was a low volume, um, scarce uh, capability. If what you begin to see more and more is precision trickle down onto lower cost, cheaper assets and decline in cost as the cost of consumer electronics falls, that's going to create a world in which you can create these precision guided weapons, whether they are five kilometer FBV drones or whether they are you know, a hundred kilometer ballistic, uh, uh, eighty kilometer tactical ballistic missiles at lower and lower cost using simpler and simpler means of production, and that is going to inevitably mean a proliferation of the technology, um, just in the way that's occurred in the last fifteen years, occurring fifteen years hence. Well, let me play a little bit of a devil's advocate because we literally just spent the time talking about how expensive these precision guided munitions are, how Israel is challenged with deploying them, how. The Russians, you know, I, I spent time talking to Ukrainian military intelligence and they've been briefing me on what they believe are Russian production rates for like the Kinjal missiles, the KH-55. And they're very low production numbers that they believe the Russians have and they're exhausting them in these assaults that they're launching against Ukrainian cities right now. So will these countries, whether it's Iran or others, be able to really produce these high precision munitions in high numbers? to matter a great deal, or are they going to remain too expensive for the foreseeable future? Honest answer, which I don't know. But I do look at Yemen, and I do look at the way they have been able to sustain this anti-shipping campaign for months and months and months. They've had their arsenal degraded in, what is it now, six, seven, eight, nine rounds of strikes. Even the first round, we were told that the uh, U.S. intelligence community estimated they'd been lost maybe 20%, 30% of their arsenal. Uh, They've been able to keep it up sporadically. They've been able to score strikes. They've been able to throw salvos at U.S. and U.K. destroyers. Would they have enough in a full-fledged conflict with the United States where the might of the U.S. and its allies are are raining down on these things and to keep it going on and on and on? That I don't know. But I do have a sense 
that given the construction of these things, given the cost of these capabilities, they are going to be able to churn out their missiles at a faster rate with fewer production constraints than we're going to be able to churn out um, extremely uh, sophisticated, um, you know, uh, anti-ship missiles or extremely sophisticated future cruise future cruise missiles. I mean, there does seem to be uh, still a kind of um, you know a willingness to uh, um, uh, cut corners, have a good enough capability, and iterate very fast. Right, the Iranians don't mind if the system doesn't get through. They 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 iterate very quickly, and you see this if you look at the Houthi. IISS recently published a a really good account. I think it was by Fabian Hines of Houthi anti-ship capabilities. It was an incredible range uh, array of missiles. Now, more is not always better. You have to maintain these things. You need spare parts. But I mean, it, it does show you that they're willing to chuck kind of a lot of uh, diversity at this problem and see what sticks. Although, as we've seen with these numbers that have leaked on Shahed drones, the production costs could be a lot higher than we anticipate. And, and that will certainly impact their ability to produce some in, in great numbers. I sincerely hope so. I, I hope that's true. I, and I, I hope that... Um, uh, some terribly unfortunate incidents before the factory in which these are being made and that the tightening of Western sanctions continues to choke off the supply of components and parts that are necessary for these things. I absolutely hope, um, you know, we, we do our very level best to ensure that, that uh, the, the costs continue to rise rather than to fall. So one last piece I want to talk about is one that also does not get a lot of attention. And I was talking about it the other day with our mutual friend, Rob Lee, uh, when you look at some of these advanced systems, whether it's FPVs, uh, or I shouldn't say advanced, but new systems that you're seeing deployed in the battlefield like FPVs and cyber, there's an underappreciation for the manpower resources that is required to sustain them, right? People see these videos of one individual flying an FPV and hitting a tank, and what they don't appreciate is that this is the sixth or seventh effort, that the team of FPVs is like four guys with support that you know the tank may have been immobilized already because they hit a mine or artillery shell struck it so there's an appreciation that this is very very in- heavily intense manpower intense project whether it's fpvs or, or cyber teams that you need to do reconnaissance and infiltration of sophisticated networks and that this is not something that you know a small nation state with very limited armed forces is going to be able to sustain have you have you uh, spent time thinking about the implications of that? That uh, yes, FPVs are cheaper than anti tank guided missiles, but they still require a lot of resources. There's so many thoughtful strands that flow from that. One of them is on manpower requirements, right? And for example, um, you know, I remember writing about um, uh, predators and reapers and other US US UAVs a few a few a few years ago, and one of the really interesting things was um, you realized how much ground support was required to keep these things aloft, to keep combat air patrols aloft, right? Um, How much manpower was required to analyze and process the huge um, stock of um, intelligence that was coming from these things. And these points made, I must recommend an excellent piece by Jack Watling in, uh, who I've already praised in the... um, War on the Rocks. I promise I'm not paid by War on the Rocks, but uh, but but they have they, they have, have ex- some very yeah. good stuff. Ryan very, Evans very is a good friend, and yes. uh, they, yeah. they put well, out well, excellent content. But I but I do I do recommend Jack's piece illustration of that. The second th- strand here, I think, is um, the importance of humility on knowing the limits of what you see or don't see. 
right? Um, survival, selection bias and videos that we see. I remember Rob pointing out to me when I wrote on open source intelligence last year, or maybe the year before that, saying, look, we get loads of videos of, of, um, of, of drone strikes, of, of, of other things. How many do you think we see of mind strikes? Mind strikes are not very sexy, but I can tell you, Dimitri, you know, people certainly at one phase of the war, mines were inflicting the overwhelming majority of uh, uh, destruction on Ukrainian tanks. I don't know about Russian tanks on some parts of the front, like uh, Bugladar, of course, they were also doing huge damage to Russians. There are not that many videos because, hey, you know, spoiler alert, mines do not carry a GoPro that pops up and records the engagement. Um, and I also think about this in the context of the, you know, the, the Yom, the Yom, the, Yom, the Yom Kippur War as well, um, in which there were sort of huge debates early in the war about what was the, you know, what, what was it that had inflicted the most damage on Israeli tanks, right? Uh, was it, um, was it anti-tank capabilities, the, you know, the Soviet sagas? Was it, um, was it other tanks? Um, and the CIA wrote after action reports that said, in Yom Kippur, Israeli tanks were mostly killed by tanks. You know, Arab tanks and anti-tank guns. Uh, Arab tanks caused about 70 to 90% of Israeli losses on some parts of the front. Now, with hindsight, that assessment changed. And we know that on other parts of the front, anti-tank guns were absolutely the things that, that really did damage. But like for years afterwards, years, we were wrestling. Like the CIA, the US Army, people with access to the data were wrestling over the exact um, granular data on some of these things. So do we think we're going to solve the problem with a few Telegram videos? Obviously, you know, let's, let's be humble. <laughs> um, and and if, if, if my reporting ever fails to do that, then, you know, call me out on it, please, anyone. But the last thing is, and you raised cyber, and, and I know this is a subject you, you know a lot more about, say a lot more about than I do, but I want to raise it with you, um, which is comes back to the manpower problem, right? We, we sometimes see the effect. We don't see the input. I remember talking to Kieran Martin, of course, the former head of the National Cybersecurity Center in the UK, someone who's thought a lot about cyber cyber engagements and capabilities. And I, I was talking to him about kind of this question of how intensive are cyber engagements? I, I know there's a debate about this. I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to settle this debate in any fashion. Um, uh, certainly, uh, Lennart Mashmeyer has written some interesting stuff on kind of the the time it takes by way of reconnaissance to conduct a, a large set piece attack against critical infrastructure, like uh, the, you know, in destroyer attacks in Ukraine. But what Kieran said to me was things like Stuxnet indelibly shaped our understanding of what cyber is and should do. And he said, in truth, he said Stuxnet, in his opinion, was the moon landing of offensive cyber, right? And what he meant by that was like an exquisite one-off that required superpower resources to basically execute. It was not and, a staple and, of what you see. And by the way, what is not talked about much is the very limited effects of Stuxnet, right? There's debates, but you know, at best, you probably had a six to nine month delay of the Iranian nuclear program with enormous efforts that went in over a multi-year period to actually cause that effect, right? In grand scheme of things, you know, probably did not matter a whole lot because Iran now, of course, has more centrifuges, more uh, enriched uranium than it, it ever had. And limited effect. But, uh, but you know, the, but the overarching point here is we, we don't always fully understand what it takes to deliver a capability, not a platform, not a reaper, not a thing in the air, but a capability or an effect. Um, so much goes into that by way of logistics, supply, intelligence, reconnaissance, so, so, so much of it. So I think you're absolutely right to kind of to, to, to point that out and to say when we ask ourselves 
about the transformation that technology and uncrewed and autonomous systems will 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 introduce. Let's just make sure we're looking at that picture in the round and assessing all of it, um, even the the least sexy portions of that whole kill chain. Well, we're going to end on that note. Uh, it's a great piece of advice. Be humble. Uh, know what you don't know, and uh, appreciate that as much as things are changing, many things are still staying the same. So thanks, thank you so much, Jay Shang. A fantastic discussion, and I encourage everyone to read your piece in The Economist and uh, track you on social media. Your reporting is always fabulous on these topics. Thank you so much for having me, Dimitri. A really, really great conversation. I really appreciate it.